Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. I feel like it's a little bit quiet here. No people tired. Hey, it is great to see so many people here. I actually thought it'd be a ghost town today. Most churches die over Christmas, New Year break. Um, I don't know, I just feel like every week there's more and more people here. If you're going new to church, you're checking it out, then I hope today's okay for you. I know it's really freaky and weird. I didn't grow up in church. I'm one of the um, many Australians, I guess, who come from a family that um, we would have ticked something like Christian in our census form, but we wouldn't really have known what that meant. And um, I became a Christian uh, in my first year of university. I grew up, like I guess a lot of Australians, believing that God was real. Uh, that maybe Jesus lived and that he may have even been the son of God, but I really had no idea what that meant. Um, and I thought, I guess, like a lot of Australians too, that you know, if I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, and I try to do the right thing, and I try to be a good person, then, then maybe I'll get to go to heaven. I hope to go to heaven. And then uh, towards the end of my first year of uni, some friends invited me to go hear a guy speak kind of about the end of the world. And uh, this guy was speaking about... Um, like all sorts of crazy things that was going to happen. And if you've ever seen some of those freaky movies, like they talk about things like the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast. And the guy was talking about microchips and being able to buy and sell and all sorts of different things. And I kind of found out later that I think a lot of what he was saying, I mean, some of it was true. I think a lot of what he was saying was actually rubbish. But um, he, at the end of that kind of session, he, he's, he asked a question. And the question was, are you sure that you're going to heaven? And of course, my answer was, well, I'm not sure because I don't know if I've lived a good enough life. I don't know if I've been good enough, consistent enough, committed enough. I hope to go to heaven. And then he said something which is a bit confronting. And he said, if you're not sure that you're going to heaven, you're probably not. Now, people worry about that question. But really what that revealed to me is that I was hoping to go to heaven because I was consistent or good. But he was saying the reason that Christians can be sure they're going to heaven is because it doesn't depend upon how consistent or committed or good we are. It depends upon an event that either did or did not happen in history. And in that moment, um, they basically said to people, if you would like to be sure that you're going to heaven, if you'd like to be sure that God loves you and has forgiven all your sin and received the Holy Spirit, then come down the front. And I, I went down the front. I'm a shy person. I, I get anxiety. It wasn't an easy thing for me, but my heart was pounding and I just knew I had to go. And in that moment, I had this peace that I've never known before and I've never lost since. And it changed my world. It turned my world upside down and inside out. And I was a good kid. I won the responsibility award in grade seven, right? I never got a detention at school. I was a good kid, but something happened. It wasn't about good or not good. It wasn't about becoming better. It was about the entire trajectory of my life that was transformed in a moment. And I knew in that moment for sure that God loved me, that He accepted me, that I had forgiveness of sins for everything I'd ever done and that I was going to go to heaven. And I had this peace that I cannot even begin to explain to you. After that, I had some friends that um, were around me who actually invited me to this and they started to really confuse me actually. And it wasn't their fault. They've actually, um, I guess, grown a lot in their faith and I'm really still good friends with all of them. But they were just very confusing. I kind of had this idea that you had to earn your way to heaven your whole life. And then I found out grace. And then I talked to my friends again. I'd just be confused again. I'm like, this doesn't make sense. So I actually stopped going to the church that they were going to. I'd only been about three times. I've been a Christian for three weeks. I actually went to another church all by myself. I had some other friends that I kind of dragged along with me. 
And, um, and then I didn't really have anyone to explain stuff to me. So I found a course called Christian Explain. Has anyone heard of this? And I took myself through it, as you do when you've been a Christian for three weeks. And then for some reason, I started reading about this guy called Martin Luther, who basically has been the most influential Christian since the Apostle Paul. And I just read heaps of his stuff and John Kelvin and a whole heap of other stuff. And it just changed my world. And what happened was I wrote down a whole heap of questions uh, that I had in those first few months of being a Christian. I wrote them down on a sheet of paper. And then I lost the sheet of paper. But a year later, I found that sheet and I could look at these questions and go, oh, these actually, I actually know the answers to these questions now. So today what I want to do, I want to warn you, I've got no jokes, no stories, no, nothing exciting, right? I usually have lots of, you know, audio visual. This is not Bible teaching today. I just wanted to maybe share with you some of those questions that I had just after I became a Christian and then some of the things that I found helpful. Now, I want to be really clear. I'm not trying to say that every Christian in the church would agree with me. I'm not trying to give a a comprehensive framework of some of these questions. I'm just trying to give you some stuff that I found helpful. Is that cool? So if you disagree or you don't find it helpful, just leave it on the shelf or come and talk to me later. That's totally cool. I I just want today to be a really helpful session. So because of that, um, if you've got questions, you can just chuck your hand up. You can interrupt me. You can even yell out something. I don't really mind. Is that cool? So today's not church. Today's like a classroom. If you're scared to yell out or if you've got another question I don't get time to answer, on, my, on the screen will come, there's my phone number up there. You can text questions in. And if we've got time at the end, I'll look at my phone and I'll um, have a look at them. Is that cool? So if you don't like what I'm saying, try not to send me, you know, evil text messages like Mark you suck it down right that's not an appropriate text message is that cool we're going to hammer through I just looked at the schedule they've only given me about 20 minutes and we're already three minutes behind time that is not going to happen prepare for a long sermon no that's not true okay you ready here we go first question what if a person claims to be a Christian but isn't living like a Christian what if a person claims to be a Christian but isn't living like a Christian so again when I first became a Christian it was all about like My whole life was like, earn your way to heaven, earn your way to heaven. Then I encountered this amazing grace, as we've just been singing about. And then I went back to my friends and they said, yeah, that person's not really a Christian because they did this. If that person was really a Christian, they would never do this. And they would say things like, you know, um, if you're in a building and you believe there's a bomb in the building, what do you do? And you're like, well, you either run away from the bomb Or if you want to be a hero, you run towards the bomb. But you do something like, yeah, if you really believed in Jesus, you wouldn't do these things. That's what people told me. Now, already you're probably thinking that doesn't really make sense. But And I'm like, yeah, I really believe in grace. So how does that fit, you know? And anyway, so I don't know if this is helpful, but this is what I I found helpful. Imagine you've got a person. So I'm just realizing. Can you see? If you need to move, feel free to move. I'm sorry if you've got strollers and stuff. Um, imagine you've got a person at, say, let's just make this up. At the age of 16, they become a Christian or they apparently become a Christian. And then at age 21, their Christian life begins to get pretty shaky to the point that it looks like they've gone off the rails. Um, they're not living a very good Christian life. Now, is that person a Christian? Are they going to heaven? Have they, you know, what happens with that person? They claim to be a Christian, but if you look at their life now, they don't live very much like a Christian at all. They're very, very, very inconsistent, very uncommitted, very wishy-washy, back and forth, 
are they really a Christian or are they just saying they're a Christian? So, let me read a passage to you and then I'll give you what I think I found helpful. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15 says this. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. For if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day, that's judgment day, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. So there's going to be a day where people's works are judged. Now, there's all kinds of debate about what kind of day that is. Is it a day about where you spend eternity, or is it about rewards in eternity? I think it's about rewards, but anyway, we'll go on. And then it says... Um, If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If, however, it is built up, in other burnt up. In other words, if someone has given their life to lots of things that are not of eternal value, they've wasted their life, they've sinned a lot, they've done a lot of things that are fairly fruitless. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So in other words, there are going to be some people at the end who you're going to look at their life and go, it doesn't look like you've lived a very consistent Christian life, but because you have Jesus, you are going to heaven. Is that making sense? Now, let me give you two scenarios here. One scenario is this. At the age of 16, let's just call this person Jack. At the age of 16, two things happened. They actually did believe in Jesus. They put their faith in what Jesus did for them on the cross. They trusted in his finished work alone for salvation. Salvation is just about where you spend eternity, forgiveness of sins, adoption of the family. And in that moment, they received the Holy Spirit. That's what happens when a person becomes a Christian, right? Forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. That's the package deal. Now, if Jack is actually a Christian... What would he be experiencing during this time of inconsistency? You can, you can be interactive here, right? What would, the kinds of, what would the kinds of things be happening in Jack's life during this time of inconsistency? What, what, someone yells something out. What do we got? Sorry? Guilt. Yeah. There'd be some level of guilt or even maybe another word would be conviction. The, Bi- the Bible says that the Holy Spirit's job is to remind us of God's goodness and kindness and love. Hey, you're not left. God has not abandoned you, but he has something better for you. And he'd be reminding them that there is a better way, that there's no need to continue down this path. This is not helpful. It's destructive. Is that making sense? Now, does that mean every single time they sin, they're going to feel, you know, probably not, right? It's inconsistent. The Holy Spirit works in different degrees, different people, different rates and different ways. And there are some sins, if we're just honest, are just pure blind spots. But you will see, or this person will experience the activity of the Holy Spirit in their life. It is undeniable. If the Holy Spirit comes to live in a person's life, the God of the universe, His job is to wage war against our sinful nature, you will experience some degree of the activity of the Holy Spirit in your life. And if you don't experience the activity of the Holy Spirit then I guess you've got to ask, well, was the Holy Spirit ever there or is He there? Is that making sense? So the other option is this. The other possibility is that Jack never actually became a Christian. He didn't put his faith in Jesus alone to save him. What he did is what a lot of people do. He made a commitment to live a good life. You know, 
Who wants to live the Christian life? Put your hand up if you want to make a commitment. Jack made a commitment. Let's give Jack a big round of applause. Does that sound like someone becoming a Christian? No, it's what we say in church, but it's not. It's not your commitment to live a good life that makes you a Christian. It's that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins. So Jack made a commitment to live a good life, and maybe he conformed the culture. Right? He said, well, I'm surrounded by other Christians. I'm surrounded by people. I just kind of fit in. They do this, so I'll do this. And they do this, so I'll do this. And, and, and maybe what happened was, hey, after four or five years, Jack's like, you know what? I don't feel loved by God. I don't have any, the, the, I don't really feel the activity of the Holy Spirit in my life. I'm not even sure this is real. I've tried really hard to be committed. I've tried to conform, but I've just had enough. And he walks away. And it could be that Jack was never actually a Christian. And that's not being judgmental because both these people may be living inconsistent lives. It's just that there's a difference between receiving forgiveness of sins in the Holy Spirit versus making a commitment to live a good life and conforming to culture. Is that making sense? Now, not to alarm you, but the research says 50% of people in churches, Protestant churches in America, this is an American stat, are in this category and 50% are in this category. Okay, next question. Feel free to interrupt. How are we going for time? Oh, who knows? It's a write-off. Okay, number two. Can I lose my salvation? Who's ever asked this question before? Who's wondering what the heck the word salvation means? Probably, okay, it's the church word. I try not to use church words, but I just couldn't think of another. What it's really saying is when a person becomes a Christian, they do receive forgiveness of sins. They're adopted into God's family. They receive eternal life. They receive the Holy Spirit. The question is, once you receive that, can you ever lose those things or can you ever lose the Spirit? And that's an important question. You can imagine as a brand new Christian, I would ask that question, right? Uh, One of my friends told me, he saw it this way, that you're out at sea and you're drowning and Jesus rescues you out of the dangerous waters and he puts you into the safe waters. I'm like, cool. And he says, yeah, but you have to keep swimming. If you don't keep swimming, you'll drown. I'm like, oh man, (laughs) okay. What's swimming look like? And what do you mean by that? And that's really vague. So again, it was a question I had. Now, um, this question probably needs, the, the whole can you lose your salvation question, we probably need about three weeks to go through this thoroughly, and I'm going to try and do it in about five minutes. I'm not trying to give a clear view that this church particularly holds. I don't even know what this church holds. I'm trying to give a clear view that I think evangelical Christianity would hold. Is that fair enough? So, um, Protestant Christianity. So, there's three, I reckon there's three possible views you can take. Um, I tried to do this at school this week and it was a little bit confusing. Okay, so can you lose your salvation? One way is through unfaithfulness. Um, Stop believing. Stop having faith. Okay, righto, so... If you can't read that, I'm sorry. Feel free to jump up and move. I'm just doing my best here with what I've got. Okay. One view would say this. One view would say, if a person is unfaithful, that is, they're not walking very close with God, they're a bit like Jack in that last example, that they are going to lose their salvation. 
And if they stop believing, they'll lose their salvation, right? So one view says that. Does that seem appealing to anyone? <laughs> Put your hand up if you feel like you've ever in any way, shape or form failed to walk closely with God, just so we can all judge you. Okay, great. Okay. I think this is a load of rubbish, even though it's often taught by some people. I don't think it's Christianity. I don't think it's evangelical Christianity anyway. And I think it's frightening. Because what it means is that you've got to keep maintaining your salvation by doing good works, right? So that's the problem with it. I think it's heresy. The second view says, if you are unfaithful, right, you will not lose your salvation. Um, And, but if you stop believing you will lose your salvation. So can I just put a passage up? This is by no means meant to be comprehensive. 2 Timothy 2.12. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, if we disown him, he will disown us. So in other words, if we stop believing, if we say to God, I no longer want anything to do with you, he will disown us. But if we are faithless or unfaithful, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. He lives in you. He lives in me. How could God disown you when he lives in you? Is this making sense? So again, that's just another view. The third view would be, no, you can't lose your salvation through unfaithfulness. And can you lose your salvation if you stop believing? They would say, this is impossible. So in other words, once the person has believed, it's impossible for them to stop believing because faith is a gift from God. Salvation is a work of God from start to finish. Those who He calls, He will bring about. Is that making sense? He'll complete His good work in you. So now, I think within evangelical Christianity, I think both these views are valid, right? Now, there's debate. I'm not going to even tell you which one I believe, right? But both these views believe that it's all about Jesus' finished work on the cross. They believe it is by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone that we are saved. Is this making sense? And what they're saying is, is that, and they actually agree that if someone doesn't have faith, they're not saved. Right? The Bible is really clear that we faith our way in. If it's possible to unfaith your way, then you unfaith your way out, right? The question is not so much whether or not you need faith to be saved. The question is, Is it possible once you are saved to stop having faith? That's where the debate comes, okay? So um, let me give you a real example here. If someone says, oh, my uncle, let's just use Jack. I hope there's no Jacks here. I'm picking on you today. My uncle Jack became a Christian when he was 16. He's now 48 and he no longer believes Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Is Jack a Christian? No. Like, it's just clear, isn't it? What do you need to be a Christian? Faith. Does Jack at 48 believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead? No, he doesn't. He's not a Christian. That's not judgmental. That's his own admission. Now, the debate comes, was he ever a Christian in the first place? Can you see the debate? Did he not really become a Christian? Was he like just making a commitment and conform the culture? Or was he truly a Christian and somehow was able to... Le- That's where the debate comes amongst Protestant Christianity, okay? Let me give you one analogy and we'll move on. One way to think about this is that imagine you've got a mother with her child about to cross a busy street and it's really busy. Now, the first view would say, 
if the child lets go of the mother, the mother lets go of the child and the child's dead. That's dumb, <laughs> right? The child lets go of the mother all the time. Okay, the second view would say, if the child lets go of the mother, the mother hangs on to the child. That's what happens, isn't it, right? The child lets go of the mother and the mother hangs on to the child. But the question comes, is it possible for the child to kick and scream and pry itself out of the mother's arms? Which is very different to just letting go. It's very different to say, oh, I, I, no, longer, um, I no longer want anything to do with Jesus. I no longer believe he's the son of God. I no longer believe he rose from the dead. I want nothing more to do with him. That's very different to struggling with doubt or belief or with, um, you know, like just sin or whatever it is. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's very different. And the debate comes, is it possible for the mother, for the child to pry itself out of the mother's arms? Okay. Any questions on that? So you don't think I'm a heretic yet? <laughs> yes, Tim. Yeah. I actually don't know. It's one of the many things that I've, I've, I've got an idea, but I actually think the answers that are typically given don't fit the context of the passage. So, yeah, I, I don't know what I think about that. I'm sorry. So, yes. Yep. Yeah, I think until we can actually have the passage and go through it in context and stuff, I think it's probably a bigger discussion. But I definitely think there are a couple of passages in Hebrews. I've got some stuff on that that I've written that I'm happy to send out to anyone who wants to know. It's not my stuff. I've literally copied and pasted commentaries. Um, there's two main perspectives. There's two main, I think there's two. Is it two difficult passages in Hebrews that people kind of are a bit worried about? Um, there's two possible ways of interpreting those passages that fit both these, right? So um, the question is, you know, is this first one valid? So anyway, we don't have time for that passage, but I appreciate the question. I think it's, I don't want to hide anything. There are passages in the Bible that, that you know you need to work through. In fact, I'm going to get to some of them, and the Hebrews passages are some that are worth looking at. So, yep, yes. Yeah. Well, again, like I, I would define a Christian, and I, again, people would have more narrow view or a wider view. I would say you need to trust in the saving work of, of God through Jesus Christ to be saved. Right? Now, you may not be able to articulate penal substitutionary atonement or you know, the ransom theory and all that kind of stuff, but you have to trust in the saving work of God alone. So I would say that once a person says, it's no longer what Christ has done for me, but now I'm going to dabble with Buddhism, which is actually frightening. Buddhism, lots of Buddhists are fantastic people. But the laws that they live under are frightening. <laughs> um, if you've ever looked into them, like it's really, really, really strict. It's not this peace-loving, hey, chill-out view that people think it is. It's really strict. Like people can be mixed up about things, but the, at the heart of what they believe, do they trust in the saving work of Jesus? So I would say that. So, yeah. No? Just stretching? 
Awkward stretch, wrong time, sorry. Okay. Any other questions, thoughts? Okay, we'll keep going. Third one. Does our, this was just a question I had. There's lots of these kinds of questions. This is an example, a bit like the Hebrews passage that was mentioned. Does our lifestyle have to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees in order to inherit eternal life? Now, this is based on an actual Bible verse I must have read very early as becoming a Christian. Matthew 5, 17 and 20, Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's frightening because if you know anything about the Pharisees, they were strict as, like super strict. You think you're like had a legalistic uncle, they were like really, 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 really strict. And they were better at conforming to their rules and God's rules than probably most people. Now, Jesus had run-ins with the Pharisees for all sorts of reasons. One of my friends, again, my first few months of becoming a Christian, my friend said to me, the Pharisees obeyed outwardly, but we need to obey from the heart. So you don't just like do something nice for someone, but you actually have to do it because you care about them. And if you can do that from the heart, then your righteousness will surpass that of the Pharisees and you'll get to enter the kingdom of God. Now, does anyone else find that frightening? (laughs) Who here knows for sure their heart is always in the right place, it's just their outward actions that aren't right? Does anyone here have that? I mean, that's my problem. My heart is pure as gold. I never do anything wrong in my heart. It's just sometimes my actions... Do you see the problem? The problem is my freaking stupid heart that can't be right. I'm like, that's the problem. I mean, I had someone at Bible college say to me, you know, I, he, the, the, he, he always has 100% pure motives in everything he does. I'm like, you are just fooling yourself. No, that's the problem. The, the whole... A lot of Jesus' ministry was saying the problem is the heart. It's from the heart that all this sin flows out. So I think that's a dumb interpretation. So this is what I think. Again, you can disagree. The law was this standard that had to be met in order for someone to be declared righteous or declared holy or to get salvation. So Jesus comes along and he says, hey, don't think I'm just this kind of grace guy that talks a lot about grace and, hey, everything's cool. Don't worry too much about sin or holiness, whatever. We don't need the law anymore. Jesus is like, no, I've not come to abolish the law. The law must stand. The law shows us what holiness is, what righteousness is. It must stand. And in fact, if you think... That it doesn't matter about righteousness. It doesn't matter about holiness. I want you to know your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees and they're the best at obeying the law of anyone you've ever seen. So you think the Pharisees are obeying the law? You've got to surpass their level of righteousness in obeying the law if you want to enter the kingdom of God. Now, so Jesus is being a bit full on here. So what do you do? Well, the whole gospel is built on this idea that we need a righteousness that is given to us apart from anything we can achieve of our own. So Martin Luther, this is my favorite quote. I've only got one quote on my Facebook page and this is it. Martin Luther said, Our sins are no longer ours but Christ's and the righteousness of Christ, not Christ but ours. In other words, on the cross, Martin Luther called this the sweet swap or the great exchange. It's the greatest thing. He said, what happened in that moment is all my sin 
was cast upon Christ. And because of that, God condemned, poured out His wrath upon Christ. And all Christ's righteousness is poured out upon me. And I am credited as being righteousness, uh, righteous, even though I am not actually righteous. So in other words, if you and I want to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees, it's not good enough just to try harder. It's not good enough to be stricter. It's not good enough to be more consistent. Because even if you get to the Pharisees' level, you still won't make it. You need a righteousness better than the Pharisees. Way better. And the only way you'll do that is if Jesus himself gives you the righteousness that he has earned through his life, death, and resurrection. And he credits that into your account. Is that making sense? Cool. Any questions? Thoughts? Okay, I don't know how we're going for time. I'm working hard. Okay, here's a couple more. Keep sending text messages through if you want any more questions done. Um, whoa. Sorry, I've just realized I've written that wrong. Sorry. Are we not doing the screen? Oh, we are. Oh, you're just doing that back and forth. Oh, you're so clever. That's that new program. Okay, um, it should say, what does the Bible mean when it says faith without works is dead? Not why does. Struggling. Okay. Uh, there's a passage in James. Again, this must have been one of the passages I looked at early on as after becoming a Christian. Um, it says this. James writes to um, um, Christians. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them things needed for the body, what good is it? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have work, is dead. He goes on to say, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God, uh, that God is one? You do well. But even the demons believe and they shudder. So in other words, what James is saying is, what good is it to say you've got faith and not have works? Can such a faith save you? Now, again, when, you know, this is just early on me becoming a Christian, I talked to different people about this, and some people would have different ideas. Some people would say, give me one second. They would say, well, you need faith, obviously, but you need good works. I don't know how I got that wrong. And if you have faith and good works, that will lead to salvation. Is that right? No. Because we are saved apart from works, right? It's by grace you've been saved, not of works, so that no one can boast. Okay. So some people would say, no, no, it's not faith plus good works. It's faith alone that leads to good works. And then if you do enough good works, then you'll pass the final judgment at the end and you'll be saved. Is that right? What's wrong with that? It still works, isn't it? It's just a nice way of saying it. It feels nicer because, oh, it's faith-producing works, you know? You know, receive the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit produces works. If there's enough works for the final day of judgment, then you'll be saved. That's still frightening. Both those are completely wrong. So then eventually, you know, you realize, and again, this is in Christian Explained. Both of them are wrong. Faith leads to salvation which leads to good works. That's it. When someone has faith, they 
are adopted into the family of God. They are forgiven of all their sin. They receive the Holy Spirit. They get eternal life. Do you think any of those things might in some way, shape or form lead them to do good works? Yeah. They're grateful. So why would, you know, they're grateful. So why not do good works? They've got the Holy Spirit transforming them heart, their heart, giving them a new heart so they want to do good works. Can you see, it's impossible for someone to stay the same. You cannot have a person who has faith in Jesus, receives salvation, receives the Spirit, receives forgiveness of sins. There will be some level of good works. Now, will that always look the way you and I think? Probably not, right? There'll be different levels of good works in different ways and different attitudes. And, you know, I could look at one of my friends who... In some ways, people would say he's not a very strong Christian. But in other ways, he's the kindest person when it comes to looking out for people that no one else cares about. And he's the first to tell people about his faith. But he probably does other things that people go, well, if he was really a Christian, he wouldn't do that. But that's everyone. It's just that some of us have aligned our lives with the socially acceptable good works and sins that church says are okay, and some of us haven't. But all of us are a mix of both good works and sin. We still have a sinful nature that loves sin and craves sin, but if we're a Christian, we also have the Holy Spirit that loves God and loves others and is producing fruit of the Spirit. And the idea is that eventually there will be good works. Now, that's not really the big deal in this passage. You think it is because that's what everyone reads, but it's not. The big deal comes in this next bit. Let me read this. This is going to freak you out. Verse 24 says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now that verse is a problem. Because if you read anything by Paul, Paul says we are justified by faith alone. Protestant Reformation, justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's justification by faith alone. The very heart of our faith is justification by faith alone. James explicitly is saying, do you not know a person is is justified by works and not by faith alone? So I spent my whole year asking everyone, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? How do you think that went? No one knew. In fact, to be honest, if you've only read this verse for the first time today, that's completely fine. Most people I asked had never read that verse. It gets looked over. It is a bit frightening. I'd rather look over it too, but I was just terrified by it, so I had to find out the answer. So I'm reading, as you do, John Kelvin's Institutes of of Christian Religion, right? Just this massive textbook on theology. I don't know why. Someone must have said read it. I was stupid enough to think, yeah, I could read that. But I read it. And John Kelvin gave an answer that I think was very helpful. This is what he says. Paul affirms, he's talking about Paul in another passage here. Paul affirms in this passage that justification is so gratuitous that he makes it quite evident it can by no means be associated with the merit of works. Now, what James says, now he's talking about this passage, that man is not justified by faith alone, but also by works, does not at all uh, militate against the preceding view. The reconciling of the two views depends chiefly on the drift of the argument pursued by James. For the question with him is not how men attain righteousness before God, but, and this is true, how they prove to others that they are justified, for his object was not to confute hypocrites who vainly boasted that they had faith. The word to justify is taken in a different sense by James from that in which it is used by Paul, for they handle different subjects. In other words, if you're trying to get your head around that, and it took me ages, I think what John Kelvin is saying is this. 
When Paul uses the word justification, he means it in a legal sense. To declare someone to be righteous. Not to declare someone to be condemned. Not to declare someone forgiven, but to declare them to be righteous. That's what justification means. But when James uses it, he uses it in the same way that uh, maybe a science teacher might use it in an exam. The science teacher might ask the question, is it possible for human beings to live on the sun? Justify your answer. In other words, tell me why your answer is true. Prove that your answer is true. Is that making sense? So what James is saying, according to John Kelvin, is you see a person tells us their faith is true or proves their faith is true, justifies their faith before men and women, shows other people, human beings, their faith is true, not by faith alone, but also by works. And that makes sense. How do you know someone's a Christian? Because of the activity of the Spirit in their life. It's not good enough just to say, I'm a Christian. At somewhere, some shape or form, they'll need to see the activity of the Spirit in your life. Is that cool? Right on. Questions? Yes. 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 Right. Okay. Yeah, I'd like to... Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So your name's in the book based upon your faith still though. Your faith in Christ. Yes, yeah. I'd love to hear that passage. Actually, I haven't really studied that passage very well. I mean, that's another thing we could talk about. Though. When we talk about someone becoming a Christian, we could talk about all that kind of stuff. The book of life is another thing. So, Okay, uh, one last one, and this was a big one for me. I don't know if it is for anyone else. Am I only forgiven for past accidental confessed sin? So last question. Am I only forgiven for past accidental and confessed sin? Okay. So, um, can we go back, or have I not got another one to go back? Ah, oh, giving away the answer. Dumb teaching. Okay, righto. This might be helpful. Can you take that off, actually, if that's all right, Tim? Okay, let me see. This is something that I came up with for students. I don't know if it's helpful or not, but let's see what we, we do here. Righto. Let's say you've got... Sorry, this pen's running out. Deliberate sins... And then accidental sins. And then what you've got is past, present, and future. Now, if I ask you, and I'm not going to do this, so be grateful, but if I asked you to fill out a table, 
Well, I want you to list off all the past deliberate sins that you've committed. Now, I probably wouldn't have that many. You probably have more than me, but whatever, right? So, obviously, it's going to be a lot more than that. Now, it would take a lifetime. You can already see this is a nightmare. This would, you'd spend the rest of your life doing this. Then I want you to write down all the present sins that you're deliberately committing. Now, if you're a really good person, you've got a pure heart and you never deliberately sin, that's fine. But most of us have a sinful heart and that's what happens, right? Or I want you to write down all the deliberate sins you're going to commit in the future. Now, no one likes to talk about the fact that they ever commit sin deliberately. Every sin I've ever committed is, of course, accidental. There's nothing wrong in my heart. (laughs) But that's not the case, is it? The fact is, unfortunately, we have a sinful heart that loves sin and craves sin. And look, to be honest, I actually think all sin is deliberate. I don't think it's possible. Like, you know, if you kick your toe and and swear, maybe that's an accidental sin. But I actually think that there's something in us that's actually quite evil. And I think if we acknowledge it, it's not just that, you know, it's not just that I'm a good person who occasionally does the wrong thing. I'm actually a sinful person that, if I'm lucky, occasionally does the right thing. So, but then I did the same thing with accidental sins, all your past accidental sins, present accidental sins, and future accidental sins. Now, you write all them down. Here's the thing. Let's say you go through and you tick off the ones you confessed. Well, I confessed that, I confessed that, I confessed that, I confessed that, didn't confess these. I confessed a couple of these. And of course, you haven't confessed any in the future because you haven't committed them yet. It's hard to confess sins you haven't committed. Um, and then you probably a lot of these accidental ones. I probably, I'm not going to confess as many of these because I probably don't really blame myself. But I'm, I've confessed a couple now. Am I only forgiven, right, for past accidental confessed sins? In other words, am I only forgiven for these? Can you see the problem here? This is a big problem. But a lot of us think that we're only forgiven for sins of the past that are accidental. That's an issue. So then what some people say is, oh, no, 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 it's not just that. God actually forgives you for all the accidental sins, not just past, but present and future, right? And again, that's fine. But the problem is, unfortunately, we have a sinful nature that loves sin and craves sin. And the fact is, we just, there's just something in us that at times, I'm not saying it's good. Don't hear me and think I'm celebrating this. I think it's terrible. It's really destructive. But, but unfortunately, so the only option, the only option that God could get any one of us into heaven is that when you trust in Jesus alone to be saved, he, can, he forgives you of every single sin. Past sin, present sin, future sin. Confess, not confess, deliberate, accidental. Sins you know you committed, sins you don't know you committed. Sins your mum think you committed, but you don't think is even a sin. Like all of them, right? They're all forgiven. And if not, then we're in a lot of trouble. And Martin Luther did say this, so we'll put that on the screen now. Thank you, Tim. He said this. God not only forgives the former sins you have committed, but looks through his fingers and forgives the sins you will yet commit. The Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, he took all of it to the cross. The Bible says that there is no accusation for those of us who are in Christ, that that we can no longer have our sins counted against us. Now, the question is then, why do we need to confess? That was my question. Right? If we don't need to confess because they're already forgiven, why do, I need conf- why do I need to confess them? And the most helpful thing I heard, and again, I'm just sharing what I found helpful, was someone explained to me 
the difference between relationship and communication. So under my parents, I am their son for life. They can't get rid of me. Now, really, really, really bad parents might disown their children for doing the wrong thing, but good parents, even average parents, even bad parents will never disown their children no matter what. And God will not disown me because I do the wrong thing. Right? That just will not happen. But when I do the wrong thing, it affects the quality of the communication between my parents. This is really terrible. But I was, I'm five years um, older than my younger brother. I must have been about 20. He was probably 15. And I don't know what happened, but he must have annoyed me and I must have annoyed him. And we started fighting. And then I don't know what happened, but he was sitting on the couch and I literally grabbed his legs and hung him upside down. I was a bit bigger than him, right? My mum walked in, screamed, and then walked out. She was so disappointed in me and so terrified she couldn't even get angry at me or discipline. I mean, I was 20 years old as well, so I don't know what she's going to do. But I just remember that, that moment thinking, I can never have a fight with my brother again. It upsets my mum too much. And it affected not just my relationship with my brother, but my relationship with my mum. And I had to apologize to my brother and apologize to my mum. Now, you might just go, it's just boys being boys. And it really was. She came in at the wrong time, but there was just something that had to be dealt with. And the relationship was not cut, but the quality of our friendship, intimacy, communication was affected. Is that making sense? So there we go. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. It doesn't say your sins have made him disown you. Your sins have made him hate you. Your sins have made him enemies. You're a child of God. No, your sins at times, they will affect the quality of communication. And one of the key things when we pray is to confess our sin because it affects our intimacy with God. So there we go. Really quickly, I'll see if there's any questions. I don't know if there is. I haven't heard any text messages. Oh, there's four. Someone asked, can they go to the bathroom? I hope you did, right. Can I please play keyboard for the last song? Yes, I can. Dan Proctor's told me I need to, um, I need to finish up and that this is a disgrace. I've gone over time. No, he hasn't said that. Okay. Um, I have a family member who was a missionary but now says he's an atheist. Was he saved and now lost? Still a Christian, never saved. Um, I think we've covered this, but I would just say if someone doesn't have faith, my best guess from scripture is they're not a Christian. Do you know what I mean? Like I just, were they once saved and now they're not saved or were they never saved in the first place? I think that's debated. But the idea that someone no longer has faith, no longer believes in the death and life and resurrection of Jesus, but is somehow a Christian because they prayed some prayer when they were six. Faith is the essential, it's the only thing we need to be saved. Now, people can debate, what about people who don't have the opportunity here? What about children who don't have the opportunity to have faith? What about uh, people with intellectual impairments? All that kind of stuff. That's all up for, you know, people debate that back and forth. But the clearest teaching of Scripture is that it's faith alone that saves us. That is what makes us a Protestant church. Um, why God needs faith, I don't know. It's just the clearest teaching of Scripture. So, uh, and there's one other question here, I think. Yes.
yeah, look, I don't think you need to be able to articulate all of my sins were cast upon Christ or his righteousness, but I think you need to trust in the saving work of God through Jesus Christ. That's my, people will be more narrow than me, they'll be more wide than me, but I think there's got to be an articulation that I'm a sinner, I need a saviour, I need Jesus to save me. So, and how that looks, especially for young kids, I have no idea. I'm glad I have your job. So. Um, cool. It's just a comment. But I, um, I'm going to pray. Um, some of you might want to become Christians. Um, I'm going to give you an opportunity. I just figure one up. So can we just have every single person with their heads bowed and their eyes closed? Um, if you're saying today you've realized maybe you've been trusting in a commitment that you've made and maybe just you've conformed to culture and you actually want to be sure for, you know, for sure that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sin, you receive the Holy Spirit. Can you just put your hand up right now and just say, God, this is my moment. This is my time. Just do that right now and just say, this is me. And let's just pray together. Father, we just confess right now we are sinful people. And we're not just good people who occasionally do the wrong thing. We are sinful with the heart of hearts of who we are. Our heart is not pure. It's not right. And there are things in our heart that, that we don't even want to speak about, God, some of the thoughts that we have. Um, and we just lay it all before you now, Jesus. You are the God who knows all things. You have been the God from all eternity past, will be for all eternity history. You know everything about us. And yet, Jesus, you loved us and not just loved us enough to, to like us, but you came down and you were crucified on the cross for our sin. And in this moment, Jesus, we trust in your work on our behalf. It is completed. It was finished by you. And in this moment, Jesus, we ask, give us your spirit to wage war against our sinful nature, to make us more loving, more kind, more willing to be the kind of people you want us to be. We pray, Jesus, that you would complete the good work that you begin in us now. We thank you that you save us, that you have a place in heaven for us, and that you've adopted us as your children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks heaps.